sort of feel desperately at the moment that it's great having an academic career, but one that doesn't translate into practice and then leave something when I've done that's made the build a world a slightly better place I'd feel gutted about that and you know frankly under my shift over the last 20 years in academia we've got less active fatter sicker <laughs> uh ate worse slept worse so you know I'm really desperate now in the second half of my career to do something more constructive about actually changing that holding my head again Making my way through crowded thoughts Sometimes it's hard to get out of it Hey everyone, welcome to this week's episode of Please Blow My Mind with me, Will Fleming. I've got to say that my guest this week is a legend. Professor Grant Schofield is a legend. He's just a legend. I am saying this because I want to impress him. (laughs) Because I really think he's a cool dude, but also... I want to vouch for him to you, the audience, to encourage you to listen to, I believe, and I feel, and I've experienced a man that just makes sense and tries hard to make sense. You know, he's got this career in academia and study and understanding science, but this dude really gives a crap emotionally about humanity. And I... I, I appreciate that. I actually need someone like that. You know, my probably, my my view on the world is probably a little bit naive, is probably a little bit idealistic. Um, I think this podcast represents, my podcast in general represents my, my subconscious search to understand the 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 meaning of that. You know, what does it mean to live a fulfilled life? Um, what does it mean to to consider all angles? And I feel like science has pushed the boundaries of articulating the everyday, you know. And it's bloody amazing if you are open. I think the thing I like about my guest this week, Professor Grant Schofield, is he's not out there saying I'm right. <laughs> in fact he he's told me uh, many times that half of what half of all science is wrong you know and the other thing he's told me is like some little tools to um, I guess wade your way through this plethora of information that we all are all in you know um, it's intense it is intense this world we live in and I guess Grant's given me the permission to explore some avenues um, scientifically and to try and yeah be a little bit better in terms of trying to understand the science. And I feel like I've done the same for him. You know, I'm quite a, um, a narrative-based person or metaphorical, and I'm, I'm always questioning to say, you know, uh, well, the world's telling us to not be stressed all the time. But we actually need stress. We definitely need it. And he'll be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, that's all science is rock solid on that. And then I'll, I'll pose questions to him like, look, if we actually do have a society where no one's stressed, that gets us too. You know, because we've got this like biological hardware which needs stressing. And, and he'll, he'll quite often say to me, and you'll hear him in this podcast, he'll say, oh, I didn't think of it like that. And so it kind of gives me hope that I can find my way in this world. And and I hope it gives you hope too, that these huge conversations about things that affect, I don't know, everything, the scale up, you know, the scale of humanity right down to the, the, the person on the individual basis, this stuff all matters. And, and I just want to get into this chat with Professor Grant Schofield. He talks about many amazing things with me, and, and I'm always excited to chat with him, and I'm excited to bring you this conversation with him. So on that note, I hope you do enjoy it. Um, please do check out Professor Grant Schofield at all the locations um, online, precure.com. Some really big moves happening in that space Um his new podcast coming up, Prevention is Cure. There's some good stuff happening. Thank you all for joining me on this podcast. You blow my mind. 
Enjoy this week's episode. Obviously, I've been tracking your posts on wellness. And what I love about that is that there's kind of like no guessing work. You're talking real cause and effect stuff. And I wondered if, um, you know, we might be able to go into some of that. And I think it really, uh, well, goes back to lots of our conversations over the years, but also a lot of the stuff you did in your white paper. I I wondered if we might kind of talk about that. And then just like this interweaving, how everything, how everything literally seems to be interwoven, you know, like right down to how we kind of release dopamine and, and even how we regain control over a more homeostatic distribution of it hey because i think people don't really um yeah so really they've got a point about the addiction stuff as well how that yeah. fitted into there and and, and the, the the caveman brains drive towards that type of thing and then the need for a reset like yeah you know, it's in the wrong environment we're always getting pushed out of homeostasis because of what we the world we've designed yeah yeah and yeah. like i think it's so relevant it's just ironic that we've just had a mental health week and we're still in this COVID lockdown. And I mean, mm. there's probably going to be studies, Grant, maybe you'd be able to put an le- uh, academic lens through this where like um, the stuff, like the 1 p.m. news shows are probably skyrocketing adrenaline, cortisol, affecting our sleep, you know, anticipation, mm. all of that stuff, eh? Yeah, sweet. All right. Well, let's let's just let's just go. Uh, okay, Grant. Thanks again for joining me. One of the pleasures about uh, knowing you is that you answer my emails, and and uh, I like that. So thank you. Um, I've invited us. Well, you here today, maybe just to ponder with me some stuff. And you know me, I kind of grapple with all of this stuff. And for me, it has to really make sense. And I've said to you in the past, like it's not enough that you can just read it on paper. I think part of the reason people like Wim Hof is because you feel something and we're humans mm-hmm. in the modern world. You know, we want to feel something. We're used to getting notifications to tell us to feel a certain way. And I think part of the challenge with wellness, as far as I can see, is um, <laughs> you might do something today that will have an effect tomorrow, but it, you're not sure how you feel because how the hell do you know? just simply by breathing through your nose that you're going to be doing something for the future. And I and I think you've been definitely one of the leaders in thinking about this stuff more deeply. Like most people just think about breathing or cold exposure as, you know, maybe something trendy that's a bit different and interesting. But you've been really diving into the science and and even like maybe if we just start with um cold exposure, you've done a, a few posts recently and been um doing a few talks around the place, you know, Maybe what's the deal there? You know, so I guess one thing it's good to hop into the cold because you don't feel like doing it. But do you think there's something psychologically beneficial about the act of doing something you don't want to do? Yeah, yeah, I think just a little bit of a bigger picture thing, and we'll get into that in a sec. But I think when I was a kid, there used to be this TV show called The Greatest American Hero. And it was a bit of a corny TV show, but the thing is this guy found the superhero suit uh, which had all these things that it could do these powers and all that sort of stuff but there was no instruction manual with it and he had to sort of go through life trying to discover how to use this thing and get his best way out of it and I sort of feel like that, that's actually quite similar to how I think many of us feel now Yeah, is that we've got this essentially a, a caveman, or maybe this is a bit of a sexist statement, a paleolithic brain and body, and we're in this place that we've created this world, this planet, now in 2021 with everything going on, and we haven't actually got the instruction manual. It's like, (laughs) how's this thing supposed to work? So you're like, well, 
there's got to be some some ways of discovering this. And actually, it turns out that there's all these little things, and not, some of them are quite counterintuitive, right? Like the cold, but there's these little hacks and just peculiar ways that we've fitted by natural selection to our environment that that we need to deal with in the terms of our own environment. So the cold is such a interesting example because it's got so many different dimensions to it, right? It's like you, it seems just ridiculously counterproductive to be to going into something that that pushes your body into a place that it, you know, it can't actually survive in cold water for that long. Like we leave you there for a couple of hours, you're going to die. But jumping in there uh, for a shorter period of time has these profoundly beneficial effects. And you know, some of those I think most people are pretty familiar with it, that you you got this. Uh, a whole secretion of a bunch of uh, uh, proteins, these myokines and stuff that drive brown fat adaptation. So, you know, you just get better at keeping warmer uh, if you have a dose small enough to be able to adapt to. And so that's one thing. And then the second thing is there's there's another whole context of looking at this water and going, geez, I, I, I feel a bit anxious about that. It's a natural thing. And how do you... You know, that's a little way of unlocking the instruction manual for how do you manage anxiety in the real world because it's a little safe way of learning it. Then there's another whole uh, effect on the brain around glutamate and dopamine and all the complexity of these neurotransmitters and neuroplasticity and brain health that we still don't fully understand because we don't know how the biology fully works, but there's, there's, there's a whole thing there. So, yeah, just you end up discovering new bits and pieces. And and I sort of feel like at this time in science around human homeostasis and, and the instruction manual for being a human in this world, it feels a little bit like the turn of the 19th to 20th century where the guy at the US patent office was, was purported to have said, look, there's really no point to the patent office anymore because we've discovered pretty much everything that's going to be discovered. How wrong was that guy in terms of, I don't know, aircraft, internal combustion engine, you know, everything, internet, everything, computing, the silicon chip, everything that's happened over the last 120 years? Well, I think we're just at that stage again now for the human body. And so I've just been, I just sort of reflect on that. It's like we just don't even know what we don't know and, and all these interesting things popping, popping out, the breathing, the Wim Hof, the cold, and it's it's what the most interesting thing for me is it's not generally scientists and the doctors and the people that presumably know the most about this sort of stuff that are discovering this. It's just randoms, mm. random people. Like, um, you know, uh, this is no derogatory term to Wim Hof and what he's achieved, but he's random. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, just a old guy in, from the Netherlands who now lives in Poland who, was walking along one day suffering some mental health problems going, oh, I should just jump in there and see what happens. Yeah. And he was able to sort of systematically go on with it. <laughs> it's kind of beautiful too that um, if you trace that stuff back, that's always how stuff starts. And it's fair in some ways, isn't it? You know, that yeah. he uncovered that suit for him and now he's trying to kind of backfill it with the science. And I look, I've been over that science, but you explained it in a way in one of your recent videos, which talked about the trial that they did on him where they injected him with stuff. And can you just run yeah. us through that? Because what it sounded like is he was through the pushing out of oxygen and then the holding of carbon dioxide, he was like rocking his system back and forward, almost like it was didn't, it didn't know what to expect. So it just expected yeah. everything. I mean, is that roughly <laughs> right? Oh, uh, yeah. So, so there's a few aspects to that. I think so. I, I, people are familiar with the Wim Hof method, which is really a a, a a few cycles of of hyperventilation. So, in slowly through the nose, and then <gasps> quickly mm. out through the mouth, and and you you're removing carbon dioxide from the yeah. lungs and the blood, and the beauty of that is you drive carbon dioxide down. Then when you go into the next, well, first of all, that that is that stimulates the sympathetic nervous system briefly, that fight or flight response, brief alertness. It, it also manually activates the innate immune system, which is great. 
What's that? And uh, what's the innate? Well, the innate immune, immune system is is what we all have, which activates to defeat the first line of defense to defeat incoming stuff. So you know, when you get a little cut, and it doesn't have to be. It's not that specific. It doesn't have to learn, you know, every cold virus and the way the lymphocytes and stuff work. It's just it's just inflammation, activation of that, but all the things we need to defeat this. So sort of general immune response. And then he goes into periods of breath holding. And because the CO2's lower, you can go on quite a long time holding your breath and then eventually drive carbon dioxide up. And that's it. You get the stimulation of the sympathetic nervous, parasympathetic nervous system. So he's sort of alternating between those two, yeah. what we thought were auto, automatic autonomic nervous system things, which is great. And, and then he does it in the context of being cold in ice baths. And his argument was, I, I've got really good control over both my nervous system and my immune system, and I can really quickly manually activate this immune system. And part of the problem that people describe saying COVID or other things is that people who do badly out of uh, flus and colds and stuff initially have a very poor response. So that, that takes a, their innate immune system doesn't activate. Um, then it does activate eventually and then it overreacts. And because it's the inflammation of the immune system is on top of existing inflammation, they get this whole cytokine storm and they get very sick. And so his argument is, well, I, I can do this. Myself, so he he he. It's that's good him saying that, and he can inject himself with things that make people sick and overcome them quite quickly. But you can you can study that pretty rigorously in science, right? So they do a randomised trial. They get twenty people, and people are everyone in the trial gets injected with an endotoxin. Mm-hmm. So it's a little type of bacteria. It's actually in your gut anyway, and it can seep through occasionally, but it's going to eventually make you quite sick. Uh, you get some flu-like symptoms as your immune system responds to it. And his argument is, well, I'll give one of these groups can just carry on as normal, and the other group I'll teach them my method, and I guarantee that that they'll have less symptoms from this endotoxin, and they'll they'll get better quicker. And this is exactly what happened, is that these people mount a very rapid, quick immune response. They deal with the endotoxin, and all of those inflammatory cytokines and stuff come down much more quickly. Uh, and they really have very few symptoms, and the other group just gets sicker. Uh, that's an amazing demonstration, isn't it? That's really cool that that was able to happen. And it just, as I say, it opens the door now to trying to understand this manual control of the immune system. And, yeah, we're just starting that journey, and you can thank these guys for doing that. It's it's the manual overdrive bit doing it on purpose like i think most people can agree the human system is pretty miraculous because it's a magic trick it does a lot of things uh, without you knowing and i think one of the things that maybe we i mean we're experiencing it in kind of this time right like we're adaptable so much so that it kind of feels normal to be in these lockdown scenarios even though it's desperately (laughs) not you know we're freaking out but it's not anything new that I would do a podcast with you online, even though we'd probably probably prefer to do it um, in person, but we're so adaptable. And it took me a while to get around this, Grant, and you help, have helped me through that. But there's this idea that we have the natural state, if you like, of homeostasis, where I think yeah. about it in my mind, where it's like, you're in the middle, you know, like the yin and yang, the balance. You've yeah. kind of, you're not doing anything more or less, but that there's yeah. these two kind of, well, the opposite teams to that, which is like high activation and maybe low activation. And I guess one of the things that took me a while to get my head around is you're always trying to get back to that kind of zero point or the middle. And if you're fighting the whole time to get back to there, you're using a lot of resources in the process, right? So if you're stressed yeah. or anxiety ridden, you might as well being do the Wim Hof method all day. That's really what we're saying, right? If you're having high adrenaline all day because you're anxiety driven, like it's like breathing like Wim Hof, but not for a controlled period of a few minutes. It's like unconsciously activating the system all day. And that's the challenge we get to, right? There's this, it must be like an overload of this nervous system, which is built to like the the fight or flight nervous system. Yeah. I reckon there's two, two really good concepts that I think we've been discussing over the last year or so, which I think are really useful. So you talk about the first one is homeostasis, that that 
there's a sort of equilibrium that we like to yeah. fall within. And as you start to push out of that, that becomes a problem. But 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 that alone, knowing that alone is not enough because the second one is this idea of hormesis, right? So if you just stay in that comfort zone the whole time, then the body starts to unadapt. It starts to not allocate resources. Like if, So if you don't exercise, uh, it's not going to maintain muscles in your quads mm. or because that's just a waste of it, of of resource so it starts to, to take muscle away from that if you lay in bed for six weeks uh you'll you waste away mm. uh, you know the same as going to space or whatever so so we need so then therefore you go well the, to maintain this sort of happy healthy homeostasis we've got to suffer stress because that stress whether it be psychological physiological or both uh from cold water from weight training from exercising from uh yeah, from from hot through sauna or uh, mm. through, you know, even the the slightly toxic effects of vegetables on at a cellular level are, are all hormetic. So that in mm. small doses they they cause a small amount of damage. But the important thing is you can cope with that damage and you can rebuild bigger and stronger. And so that's that's what maintains homeostasis is small amounts of stress that you can adapt to. Uh, now the problem is that you're talking about is that you end up giving people chronic amounts of stress. Um, you can go exercising all day is going to be bad for you. You stay in uh, ice water for two hours, you know, you could die. You you get psychological stress for too long. Even things like the nasal breathing, if you just do some of uh, Patrick McGowan's type uh, paces exercise, you know, where you you breathe in and out, and then you hold your breath for a bit. At the bottom of the breath, and just you know, walk and see how many steps you can do. It gets it mildly hypoxic. Mm -hmm. You do that sort of ten times a day. There's benefit if you do that all day. Yeah. You get the exact opposite effect. You end up doing really badly in virtually everything in life. So, so when you start to think about how you have a good life, there needs to be an acceptance that you're gonna have to stress yourself. Mm -hmm. uh, the stress, the dose is critical. And you know what you can take now, say in terms of hot in a sauna or cold, because you're quite practiced to it. Um, someone else might go into it, and it's going to be way too hard for them because they're just beginning. Yeah. Uh, and so I know you're pretty experienced, in that, and I know I'm a better exerciser than you, so I know what I can take mm. uh, when I do a session after this this podcast will probably be quite damaging to you because it's you know I'll be giving give it to myself, but I'm I'm able to do it because I've built up to it. Mm. Uh, but if I have a month off, then I won't better do it. So I shouldn't. So that, that's the tightrope of homeostasis and hormesis, isn't it? Well, and Grant, like if we just go a little bit wider again, you're a professor in public health. I guess one of the, maybe your life's challenge now is how do you explain it? Because I was explaining it to a friend, right? We were talking about, yeah. he was talking about having aches and, you know, like work-related stuff, you know, sitting on a computer with a mouse all day and yeah. Yep. And he was like, oh, man, you know, I've been watching some of the breathing stuff you're doing and cold. Why do that? And so yep. I was trying to make a logical argument. But in the end, I might as well be talking about Greatest American Hero because <laughs> for someone to hear it, they just can't believe that a 20-second cold shower, even though I went through everything, you know, I said, yep. when you get this mental benefit of not wanting to do it and achieving it, and if you add on top of that, trying to do it in a calm way, you will be actively pushing against your natural fight or flight system, you know? Perfect. Two, you will be um, shocking your body, releasing all the adrenaline. That's going to give your body a quick sweep in terms of your immune system. You know, that's, yep. that's great stuff too. And three, you're going to get out feeling awesome because you're not in the damn cold shower. And he was yeah. like, yeah, yeah, that's awesome. But then I never got a text from him to say, oh, I did it. So there is this kind of gap still, isn't it? Because um, – yeah, and, and I don't know if there's other examples. There must be. Like, well, smoking might not be a good one because I guess that was a physical thing you could feel and touch. But everyone thinks it's crazy till they don't, right, Grant? And I, I wonder. Yeah, if it's well, just I mean, time. there was a there was a there was a time in human history when people felt that smoking was good for you. Mm. There was a time in human history just recently where people felt sugar was a health food. Mm. Yeah, I think you just forget how that changed and there's I think I think part of the problem for people like you um, and to an extent me is that you're an early adopter with an open mind 
Yeah. And the trouble with that is that, that you just don't realise because it's built into you that other people don't think like that. Yeah. And yeah. and so, so you know, that's part of those sort of personality tests. So like, I really like that Enneagram for that reason, that you, know, you just fall into some of the categories of me. You're open to new information. Uh, you want to challenge the status quo, those sorts of things. There's a whole lot of people that aren't like that at all. Mm. Uh, in fact, you're in the minority. Yeah. And so, so people, you know, like to be here with stuff and, you know, I think, and they like to be in a community where they're just given instructions about what to do. I, I, I sort of, I, I look at the whole lockdown stuff at the moment and they do polls and 70% of people are going, oh, yeah, it's a great idea. I'm quite happy with where we're at. It's like, are you people thinking at all? <laughs> um, well, the answer is no, they're not. But that's, you know, so that, that that's the parental challenge for early adoption. And, you know, that was the problem, I think, that we felt with the medical half-life, right, is that this stuff would be around for 40 years and eventually medicine would have a go at it. And I guess part of my reason for being is to go, can we just challenge that half-life? Can we get there a bit quicker? Because, you know, in the meantime, uh, there's all this good quality life that's being missed out because yeah. not because the information is not there, because people never did anything with it. You know, it's astonishing, really. Well, and bluntly too, like suicide rates are so stupidly high that yeah. they're almost we've almost re well we've tried to go back to homeostasis saying we will expect something like that and i was thinking the other day grant that if you are anxiety driven you know having um chronic panic attacks that's actually your body and mind working perfectly to tell you something's wrong isn't it it's actually 100%. You should be thankful. That's the superpower that there's the system constantly telling you every day and night, so much so that it will keep you in bed until you to work it out, work the damn thing out. But we don't have, well, I think we've forgotten these tools that we're talking about, which can help lead you back to that because, because that's all you would have had in these caveman times. Right. Like, yeah. And, and, and that's, that's where that logical argument, like, okay, so you're saying that this stuff sounds crazy. What? What's that's w- less crazy than being anxiety filled all day and night? It's less crazy to hop in a bath and to um, challenge yourself to hopefully put a few things back in order. Yeah, it's it's um, yeah, well, it drives me crazy with mental health. I think you know part of that discussion is and and needed to be have. It's like, oh, we need to talk about mental health. We need to stop destigmatizing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, I think we've got there now. We are talking about it. I don't think there's much stigma even, you know, for people with serious psychosis, people understand that that's happens to some people and we need to, you know, um, support them and that sort of thing. But but what's missing, you're right, above that is like talking, acknowledging that it's a problem and destigmatizing, it doesn't give you any tools. It's like going, you know, imagine going, yeah, we acknowledge that Will's car is a pile of shit and doesn't work properly, and we're talking about it, and we're not stigmatizing Will for having a piece of crap. Yeah. You've still got a piece of crap that doesn't yeah. work, you know. Mm-hmm. So, you know, what the, the, you know, in that context, it's pretty obvious. Well, we're, you know, what can we do to get Will's engine sorted out, or does he need to pump his tires up, or does he need an oil change, or we just need, you know, to, to, do something else. Well, we're, so why aren't we do? Why yeah. are we doing that? Why are we not exactly. talking about the tools, the actual tools? Well, the tool that everyone's talking collectively, and I think in the consciousness of our culture, is that yeah. if you're depressed or something, you take a antidepressant. Yeah. And even if that's not what the government recommends, because I heard you talk about this recently, the yeah. actual first step is like talk therapy, nutrition, you know, these type of things. But yeah. everyone jumps to if I have that tablet, it's going to make me feel better. And yeah. and Grant, maybe you could just talk me through this because it's really interesting. Like when I hear you talking about, especially like antidepressants and stuff, you're pretty brutal, you know, because you you understand the science about, I guess the efficacy or the the amount that it actually works, you know. Yeah. So let's say you're someone with mild to immediate or just depression, um, yeah. and you, you're going to well, first of all, if you can get a meeting with a psychologist or psychiatrist because they're quite in demand in today's society, aren't they? Yeah. Um, and and I mean, yeah, they're going to put you on what some type of um, antipsychotic drug, or is, is that not the case? 
Well, so I think well, the first thing to think about is you know part of the problem with depression is that to to find out about the what's going on, you can't you're generally not doing a blood test or something, right? Like diabetes mm-hmm. is is a bit easier to quantify. Like you measure your sugar in your blood, you know, this HbA1c because your red blood cells are renewed every six weeks or so, then the amount of damage by sugar to your blood cells, glycated HbA1c, yeah, really pretty much tells you where they're at. So, so you can measure it pretty carefully. You don't have to ask them uh, to, to find out how they're feeling. It doesn't really matter. It's just like that's your blood sugar. Whereas mm-hmm. yeah, mood and depression and anxiety are different. Than that. It's not doing a blood test. You've got to ask them. So, so first of all, that's a bit of an issue. So how do you even measure this? Um, but but you know there are depression scales, Hamilton depression scale, Hamilton anxiety, Vex depression. So yeah, those are pretty standard things. So you go well. If I was giving people a treatment to help their major depressive disorder or just their mild or moderate depression or their anxiety, then the best I could hope for is to see some sort of decent, meaningful movement on that depression scale. And so, so that's the first thing. So then you go, well, how do different treatments stack up by doing clinical trials on these depression scales? And so that's exactly what's been done with with these uh, the various psychiatric medicines, right? So, so people will end up often being prescribed an SSRI, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor. Uh, yeah, it's just sort of Prozac type. Things there's all sorts of different ones, phenophylaxine, fluoroxine, those sorts of ones. But and so they have different side effects and you know po- po- possibilities of harm and possibilities of benefit and that sort of thing. And so there's been a lot of trials across all these medicines done for mild and moderate depression and major depressive disorders across the the last twenty years, really. And then the question is, some show a benefit, some show no benefit. Some don't even get published because the drug company didn't want to publish them. But but you can take all of that evidence together in a thing called a meta-analysis or a meta-analysis of randomized trials. So you can put that, you know, a study of all the studies put together, and then you can quantify the, the net effect of the drug over a placebo. And so the first thing to say is actually both placebos and SSRIs have have a bit of an effect on your depression. So just taking the sugar pill seems to help a bit. But the question is, is there an effect over and above the sugar pill of the antidepressant? And the answer is, yeah, but it's pretty small. It's probably about a 1.8-point change in a 50-point depression scale. That's probably not enough to be clinically meaningful. Um, It could be for some people. And so I think the best you can say about antidepressants is they, they provide a temporary relief from symptoms for some people. And so then you go, well, how does that compare with other things that you could do? Well, you could get people exercising or you could help them with sleeping better or you could get them eating better um, or you could give them high doses of micronutrients like Julia Rutledge does. Mm. And you see much bigger effects. So typically in the range of sort of a four to six point change in the antidepressant scale, and it's not temporary, it can continue. Um, it can sometimes be curative, which the antidepressants aren't, and you're surprised about that. And then, then the trouble is with the antidepressants that some of them, for some people, cause some harms. Vetoflaxine uh, you know, is an interesting example. It increases your chance of suicidal ideation. It means you don't sleep very well uh, often, and then so then people end up with a with other medications, and you can end up with with things to stop the symptoms, and they cause more symptoms on themselves. And then uh, I know one lady at the moment who who's really ended up on about five or six psychiatric medications because of her depression and really had no advice about anything else. And then you can think about other things that we haven't talked about, like talk therapies, especially acceptance commitment therapy. You know, that's been out for a decade or more. There's meta-analysis of trials. It's, it's effective. Uh, it's easy to use. There's no real side effects. Uh, you don't even have to be a psychologist to learn it and teach it. And... Again, we haven't delved into those tools. So it's an interesting thing. And I, the, the other one you asked me about is antipsychotic medication. That's something slightly different. You want to talk about that just quickly, right? So that you end up with these sort of first and second generation antipsychotics. And these are usually used for more serious problems like schizophrenia and that sort of stuff where people are getting 
uh, having psychotic episodes, often delusions and that sort of thing. Um, and they can be pretty destructive. And, and often people do need some intervention with those um, at, at least immediately because they have the, the possibility of harming themselves or other people. And so you've got to look for something. And that something is antipsychotics. The only problem with antipsychotics is they have, uh, especially the first generation, is pretty bad metabolic side effects, so rapid weight gain, uncontrolled hunger, that sort of thing, and and a dulling of 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 hedonia. So you don't the ability to feel good disappears, as well as the ability to feel bad, um, which sort of you think evens things out. But people don't really like that in the long term, so they gain weight, can't feel anything, so they get off them and. Again, so we haven't really got great solutions in that part of psychiatry, and I think hopefully psychiatry can lift its game in the next couple of decades and open its eyes and ears to other potential uh, compounds. And I think that, that high psychedelic stuff is an interesting space in that, but I don't really. What do you think's going on there, Grant, with psychedelics? Like, oh, I just think think that there's a whole whole new thing that we need to understand. Mm. Um, the only fear I have with that is it's like we're just looking for another medicine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I don't know. Uh, no, but yeah, it's like, interesting. And and like I, th- I, I think that's all. Look, this is just Will's broad claims, and I can still do that on my podcast. But <laughs> kind of, it feels like to me because that's the fun bit for me is hypothesizing this stuff, you know. And and yeah. I know one of the weird bits that I learned through you about science is science doesn't really have to tell you why it works; it should just yeah. tell you it works or not. And I think yeah. that was a real hard thing for me because I was expecting it to tell me it works and why. But yeah. all of the stuff that I've been learning is like not really interested in that, you know. You ha- you then have to understand it well enough to, I guess, connect more dots, but. I like hypothesizing and uh, the idea that I kind of had was maybe psychedelics or that idea you have of transcending wherever you go to is what we're aiming towards with mastering breathing and cold therapy and, and like, you know, like I think even some people who do Wim Hof get that feeling of um, a psychedelic, you know, because they've done these long breath holds and the brain is, Going somewhere, you know. Oh uh, yeah, that's a really that's a really good point that you're raising there, isn't it? That's a good point. And, and I, I had actually been thinking about that just the other day for some reason. Uh, you know, the whole idea has become quite popular now. That sort of um, Eckhart Tolle's awakening and waking up and all that sort of stuff. And mm. uh, yeah, there's quite a lot of people around the world that are exploring that notion of of sort of transcending self and all that sort of stuff. And it, it all seems quite out there for most of us and not really attainable, then they go, it's always attainable. And the question is, does does something like a mind-altering drug like a psychedelic just actually help you get to that space quicker? Yeah. Um, or, or can you just get there anyway when we understand it better? And and uh, yeah, yeah, certainly breath, uh, temperature, uh, uh, learning about thinking and not being able to observe thinking, not being thinking. Mm. Uh, which is, is is an important but subtle difference. Yeah, yeah. Perhaps all of those things are uh, totally learnable, and we don't have to rely on those. And, and those are solutions. So, as I say, I think it's just the beginning of. It's such an exciting time to be in the in the field of health, longevity, well being, mental health, preventive mm. medicine. I don't know that all those fields sort of converge on the same thing because because the the manual is still being written. Yeah. Still being discovered. <laughs> You're still so. being refound, eh? Yeah, like yeah. Well, that's right. Yeah. So, so refounds are like that's a cool point. Well, like, mm. like that's what I like about stoicism and secular Buddhism and those sorts of things. Like, like people have thought of this yeah. before us. Absolutely. Yeah. I think, um, you know, from doing a bit of research into ancient breathing, you know, you read things like. Uh, the Chinese have six books on breathing, but it boils down to like, I shouldn't hear you breathe. So that's the whole thing. And that's actually quite a nice point, you know, that if you can hear yourself breathe, you're most likely breathing too much. Um, um, Grant, one of the things I've been wondering just to ask you too, like, you know, I saw you talking about HRV and like, I have kind of challenges with trying to understand that because one I think my motivation for understanding it isn't for performance. 
And so I don't need to think about my body. I think about fitness as I need to have a tool set that I'll arrive somewhere fit, but I'm not actively chasing it. And I think that's just the difference between a, an athlete and someone yeah. who's just general population, you know? Yeah. Um, so I think athletes, by the way, are probably the outliers in our society, right? Yeah. They probably represent humans for their um, ancestral form, but a lot of people <laughs> have moved forward into this world of, you know, sitting all day and whatnot. And yeah. so when I think of like a, um, a measurement for wellness, I was thinking the other day about like uh, blood pressure is actually more of a, well, it's, wouldn't you agree that it's actually a better measurement for stress because stress does increase your heart rate and increase your blood pressure. And yep. I guess chronic stress gives you heart disease because it's always high, high blood pressure. And yep. lots of people have that. But I don't think a lot of people would think about having high blood pressure as a chronic stress. I think they just think they're unhealthy. Yeah, I, I actually quite like that's a good point. I hadn't been quite thinking about it in those terms, but I think you make a good point. Like, like at a moment in time, your blood pressure as a sort of weighting, weighted moving average of your whole life, where it weights the most recent experience quite highly, but it, it still weights everything that's ever happened to you in some way and so you're, you're right so at, at the at the very most recent level it's like you know how you how you're dealing with controlling your sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system division can you can you dial that down and not have to have it chronically activated into fight or flight but then beyond that yeah and remember that like the cool thing about this is you're getting this measure just by not having to inject or draw some blood out of someone or take it to a lab. You just put a cuff around their arm, yeah. sit them down, and and just either use the automatic machine or use a stethoscope and away you go. Mm. And it's measures basically the the condition of your vascular system. Yeah. Now, now you think about that, and, and I don't know if people have seen this, but that you know, you get those sort of I can't remember the names of them, they had uh, exposition we went to once at at uh hotel in Auckland where they'd they you know they dissected out different things in the human body so they dissected out the nervous system which is incredible they dissected some guy's skin off and they you know sort of artwork um, and they also dissected out the entire vascular system it's ridiculous uh what's involved you know there's some hundreds of kilometers of blood vessels mm-hmm. now the condition of those blood vessels depends on on what you've been eating how you've been sleeping uh about how much you've been exercising and what type all in the context of how much stress you are getting, uh, that sort of whole hormesis, the whole functionality of your body depends on your vascular system being in a good condition. Right? So, so if your vascular system's not in a good condition, you're more likely to get depression, Alzheimer's, have a heart attack, get cancer, whatever. So, yeah, you're right, blood pressure. Well, I thought about that. As, because- as a great measure of, 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 of the human condition, that's the easiest thing to get. Yeah, and it's something... Yeah everyone kind of knows as a like someone takes your blood pressure you, you don't know what really it's is happening but you know it's serious because yeah. we're used to it from our gps but i also yeah. thought it it lines up with like you know for me it had to make real sense when you look at maori pacific you talk about bad health outcomes but yeah. they're also the highest for diabetes highest for blood pressure so i yeah. think it'd be easier to say when you have those statistics you are the highest stressed people as well. And if you put that measurement on it, you say, okay, well, part of wellness then is how can we bring blood pressures down? And I think that's a better logical argument to why you should eat better and exercise more because it's not for weight reduction. It's for the reduction of blood pressure. Because I also thought, how the hell are you supposed to get to homeostasis if your default system is always pumping? You know, you unconsciously yeah. going to be making fight or flight decisions because you have a system that's ramped up and, you know, understandably so it's trying to get back to homeostasis, but I guess it can't, it needs tablets to um, combat it. Well, the, ta- the, well, the tablets are ridiculous. So I, 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 I think there's a couple of things to think about there, right? So uh, first of all, 
if you get stressed, so let's think about a few roundabout mechanisms here. If like if you're, if you're totally stressed out, sympathetic nervous system, then you're more insulin resistant. And then if you have some crappy food, that your glucose goes higher and your insulin goes higher. And the problem with that is that when glucose is high and insulin is high, then uh, you retain sodium in the blood. And then that needs dilution to make it the right amount of sodium. So you end up retaining a couple more liters of uh, fluid in the blood. And now you've added a couple of liters to the same size system of hoses. And so it's under more pressure. So, so you've got higher blood pressure, right? So you can see like stress indirectly through diets affected blood pressure. Then stress directly causes sympathetic activation and blood pressure goes up. If you're breathing through your mouth, not through your nose, then you're not producing nitric oxide. You're not getting the vasodilatory effect of nitric oxide through nasal breathing and, and letting the system relax and whatnot. So you've just got like multiple pathways of stress and blood pressure. So you're right. Yeah, I think blood pressure is a, a great thing. People get scared about doing it. Yeah. Uh, well, because it, yeah. reveals- be, yeah, it reveals quite a lot. But then also you have to be careful. Like I had an, an incident a couple of years ago where the doctor's going, you've got mild hypertension, we're going to need to medicate you. (laughs) And, you know, they often medicate you with diuretic, right? So it's like, we'll we'll get around the problem of eating too much sugar and being too stressed by making you pee some some of the fluid out. It's not really a great answer. Why don't you just go to the the source (laughs) of the problem? But uh, I'd always ride my bike down to the doctors and they would measure my blood pressure. go, oh, it's a bit high. And I said, well, just fucking ridden down here, you know, like whatever. Yeah. And they're like, oh, well, we need to – the gold standard is we're going to send you to Auckland Cardiology and they're going to put this this halter thing on. You're going to wear this blood pressure thing around for the day. And, of course, that day, I don't know, I was at three different campuses and I caught the bus to each one and I rode my bike to another. And and they're like, well, no, look at all these spikes in blood pressure. I was like, well, I was exercising. And they're like, well, no, you shouldn't be doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, we're going to put you on this medication. I was like, oh, for God's sake. So I got a blood pressure monitor from my lab, went home, sat on the couch quietly that evening, Measured my blood pressure about five times in a row, got like 108 over 78. And I was like, what? how? How? Like, I, there must be people out there, you know, so it was just getting measured the wrong way in the wrong place. Anyway, that's yeah. not the whole story. No, no, no. But, yeah. but there's something to that because you, it's like, uh, you know, the imagine, well, you know, stress can be imaginary or real, like a stressor. And, and I think it's yeah. the same with that. It's the same as the placebo. You think you're doing something towards it. So when you think you're getting your blood pressure taken, you automatically start raising up, you know, what's happening. And like a lie detector test or something, I need to be calmer. And then the more you try and be calmer, the more you get anxious. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and like for me, like I'm at the doctor and I'm supposed to know all about the stuff. And, you know, it's going to be awkward if I've got high blood pressure. The man I go on about diet and sleep and <laughs> exercise and, and stress and everything. And, and I'm just going, oh, no. And I'm getting stressed. And I'm going, oh, I need to calm down and breathe. And none of it's working for me. So I end up getting high blood pressure at the doctor because I've got this, obviously got this white coat syndrome. Oh, my God. Uh, anyway, that's <laughs> yeah. my whole story. Um, <laughs> Grant, just to kind of, I guess, uh, slowly bring it all together, I want to talk about, and I don't know how much you want to talk about it, but, you know, I've been thinking a lot about people addicted. And I'm, I, I'll raise my hand. I'm someone, I call myself, I'm, I'm addicted to sugar. You know, actually, yeah. um, I have a bad relationship with food, and I always have, and I, I actually traced it back. I know why. My mum grew up in the Cook Islands. They didn't have much food. They starved, not starved, but, you know, it wasn't yeah. luxurious like it is here. So when they came here, her job was like, I'm going to give this dude, being me, everything, you know, and yeah. like feed him like a king. And the problem is with that, and she says to me today, sorry about that. I thought I was doing you a favor. You know, and yeah. so I've thought about myself like an alcoholic with food. So for the last month I've been, you know, you you know me, I try lots of different things, but I've just said, nah, no sugar. Okay. So I have yeah. to choose things that don't actively have these things in it. And I know you've talked a lot about protein and the kind of effects on that, but I, I guess I just wanted to talk about someone in that addict realm. Um, yeah. What's your kind of latest thinking on, you know, people... Uh, I guess just down in the dumps. You know, I spend a lot of time thinking about like if you're stuck in jail, if you're yeah. stuck in your mind, what are some of these things that you can do just to like maybe not actively but subconsciously start pulling you forward? And I know like, yeah. you know, 
diet and exercise and these things, but maybe you could just go into a couple of points that, you know, some research that you've kind of come across. Yeah. So I think it's interesting to think about how the, the thinking on addiction has evolved, right? So mm. we'll get to food specifically in a sec, but more more recently, historically, first of all, addiction was seen as sort of a, a personal moral weakness. And often one way to punish that was through you know, treating it as a crime. And, and that's what ended up being the whole war on drugs thing in the US, your spectacular failure, that sort of thing. And they advanced their thinking on that and then it became, well, no, it's a sickness. You've got a disease. And that's sort of, I guess, the Alcoholics Anonymous model that once, once, once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. You're always one drink away. You know, I've been 362 days sober or whatever, and it has some effect for some people. I think the the third wave of thinking on addictions is just getting going now. And if people haven't listened to, you can either read her book, but Anna Lempke has been on Huberman and uh, Joe Rogan recently about this, but. She's going, well, addiction, you know, especially if you think about it like in a food context and the way dopamine operates and the reward pathways, is really a absolutely normal response to how a caveman brain would operate in the modern environment. Like getting addicted is like totally normal given the environment you're facing. The question is, how do you get out of it? How do you deal with that? And the answer is you're going to need the brain's ready for that. It's really, it's has the neuroplasticity if you treat it right to to reset that system. And so those sort of hospitalization of people or when people get off stuff and they can get the tools to do that can work quite well. You know, I think something a little bit more benign like food addiction. It's not illegal. Yeah, it's going to make you too fat and all that sort of stuff. Then, then how do you deal with that? I really like that uh, acceptance commitment therapy, and I guess part of that um, special section is what they call willingness, right? So you get cravings for food, like you, you see salty and sugary, f- fatty foods, or mm. you know, donuts, or sort of going to chips and beer for me, and like any of those things. It's like that they produce a dopamine response and the more you use them, the more you need to get the same response and then more, therefore you're in a craving situation. You've got the cues from them and all that sort of stuff. The question is, what do you do about a craving? You can either, you can either fight that craving, right? You can, you can, you can, you can take up a struggle with the monster on the other side of the pit and fight the craving and try to pretend it's not happening. And the trouble with that is we can try avoidance, you know, all those distraction, opting out, time travel, uh, you know, those sort of techniques that you, people try to get away from having those thoughts just don't work. In fact, they magnify the problem, right? You know, because, you, you know, when we you know, don't think about a can of Coke, is, is sort of that, that white bear experiment. Of course, you're going to start thinking about white bears and cans of coke and everything. The more the more you engage with the monster, the bigger it grows, basically. And Grant, just to put a quick pin in that, that's the development of PTSD, right? Avoiding yeah. the trauma or the thing and trying to block yeah. it out. And yeah, and it magnifies it. Yes, yes, yes. It's, it's a your body and mind working perfectly, isn't it? It's like yeah. deal with it. It's yeah. saying deal with it, eh? Yeah. Whereas, whereas. Is there a way you can stop this, drop the rope, stop the struggle? And and that's one of those simple techniques. Sounds too good to be true, but it's like there's a very subtle difference between going, I'm craving that, and uh, I'm I'm feeling that I'm craving that. And then the more advanced thing is I'm noticing a feeling of craving. And so willingness is a willingness to sit with those thoughts and feelings as a normal part of physiology, but not necessarily act on them. And that is the basis of acceptance commitment theory, sort of diffusion, fusion type things. And so, so we're not trying to fight the idea that a normal human likes sugar uh, or beers or salt and vinegar chips or donuts or whatever. 
Um, that's that's utterly normal physiology. The question is, how do you manage that in a pathological world? And mm. the quest that that that's being able to the willingness to sit with cravings but not act on them. And then the language changes from "I have a craving" to "I'm thinking about a craving" or "I'm noticing that I'm thinking about craving." So my challenge to you, Will, is mm. next time you're craving something, is to see if you can step back into some maybe a few nose breaths, step back into a space where you go, "I'm I'm noticing that I have a craving," and seeing if that changes anything. It might not, but no, no, it yeah. it, it does because I had a I had it last night like a. You know, the obviously the KFCs and stuff were op- open, and I took the kids for a drive to get some, and I didn't get any yeah. for myself. But I, and I did pretty good all day, and I sat there and yeah. I said to my wife on the couch, you know, that burger's talking to me, and I made a bit of a joke yeah. about it, but I acknowledged yeah. it, and she's yeah. like, "Oh, what's and, and it, it is saying? talking to you, of yeah, course it yeah." Is. And I, I imagined it going, hey, hey, fat boy, come on. I'm just here, you know. <laughs> yeah. Of course, it was a burger. Everyone was full. It was sitting on the table. It was like life's perfect way of like looking at you. But yeah, I yeah. found that we made a bit of a joke out of it, and then I just carried on. You know, I took the piss out of it. And, yeah. I, I mean, I'm kind of someone who's critical, very critical on that because I hear that stuff all the time. And I think I've built myself self enough other tools too. Like, for example, I'm really diligent on taking – pretty high doses of um, fish oil, you know, because yeah, yeah. I've read that stuff about it, that it's just yeah. your body can't produce fish oil on its own and it needs yeah. those micros in it. And also like, um, you know, obviously the cold therapy that I do regularly. So I think to myself, I'm probably stronger than the Will who would have set out to, to joke about a burger a year ago yeah. or two years ago. Yeah. yeah. And, hey, so we, what we didn't finish, what we should finish with on this yes. bit is the bit that you actually originally asked about, I never answered, is, is are there, there's also another another side to craving and, and addiction, and that's really the sort of protein leverage theory and a micronutrient leverage theory, is that the body actually needs essential nutrients, some, some essential fatty acids, some essential amino acids, proteins, and some essential other nutrients, micronutrients like, uh, you know, different omega three fatty acids, uh, uh, vitamin C, vitamin D, vitamin E, you know, zinc, selenium. You can't manufacture these. You need to get them from plants or animals. And so there's one theory that says that you're just going to the body's really driven to get these. So if you're malnourished, in other words, you haven't got enough of the essential nutrients, you're just going to keep eating food till you, you you get enough of them. And so mm. I think that's another competing layer to think about. Is, is providing yourself with nourishing food. Um, and, and then when you do get cravings because you've been misbehaving in the past and you're hardwired for that, then then you can notice those thoughts and mm. not be those thoughts and all that sort of stuff. But I think I think you I think what you're going to start with is you're dead right is that uh, if you're not nourished, the body's body wants to be nourished and it's going to do whatever it can to get those things. And if if it thinks that, you know, there may be a trace amount of vitamin C in a donut, but it's going to keep trying to eat and a trace amount of yeah. protein. So, yeah. it, it actually lets you off the hook if you realize that it just thinks it's just going after what's available to try and get what it needs and it won't stop. Yeah, yeah. It's just, yeah. again, it's a beautiful example of the body working and the mind working. It's just, I think that's yeah. why I started, you know, um, I know you've done some work with Army and SAS and that type and, I was always fascinated with their rubric or or survival mechanism. They had that rule of three, you know, three weeks yeah. without food, three yeah. days without water, three minutes without air. And I thought yeah. that was interesting to think like I did the same mental challenge for wellness. I was like, well, if you had three weeks without something, what would it be? And Or like yeah. three weeks towards something. I said, maybe yeah. a wellness picture looks like three weeks with just micronutrients, you yeah. know, so restoring that. So don't even yeah. worry about mental health or anything. Just fill your body with that. And then three yeah. days with something else. And then three yeah. minutes with like a breathing practice, you know? So maybe yeah, it's yeah, like- that's right. Yeah, that's a cool way of thinking about it, right? So yeah, because I like I like three-week challenges anyway. Like I think that 200 yeah. days is a good period just to embed something yeah. and have a go at something and forget what you failed. Then you're like, right, well, you have to three days, you can do something a bit more intense. Exercise, exercise. Yeah. So it's like yeah. um, three weeks, just micronutrients. So that's nutrition covered. And then you go three minutes every day with an exercise. Sorry. Yeah, yeah that's right. Eh? Three days. And yeah. then you do three minutes 
with um, some type of mindfulness or acceptance therapy practice, yeah. you know? Yeah. And I think that would be the right order. At the moment, I think we put it all at the start. We're like, just meditate. And it's like, well, yeah. my body wants fish oil. I just don't know that, you know? <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, 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 yeah. You got it. You got to provide the building blocks, right? Like mm. we need to, like you wouldn't, you wouldn't, like having enough sleep, having the right air to breathe, mm. uh, uh, being in a position where you can move like the live animal you're supposed to be and having the nutrients mm. that we need as that are unavailable for us to manufacture ourselves. Like those seem mm. like pretty important building blocks. So you want to spend weeks on those different aspects and do one. You can't do them all at once because you get a bit overwhelmed. That's right. Um, yeah. So, yeah. And also you don't know what fails and you've got to be prepared to fail. Yeah, yeah. Also, yeah. Look, Grant, I, I always say it. I appreciate you just taking time, um, <laughs> taking time with me. You know, that's a that's a fun relationship to be building together. And and you know, you said it. We're collectively, we're all just at the beginning of this. And um, you know, I can't wait to see what emerges out of it. I feel like us having cracks at talking about it and podcasts and stuff is awesome too. And um, can we kind of reveal, I guess, to the audience that you've got some exciting stuff coming up in your podcast realm? Um, you've been yeah, I'm going to do a whole. I, I'm, start, I'm, I'm getting the, a new preventionist cure podcast getting going shortly, but I've got a whole round of mental health just focusing on the mental health stuff, uh, and, and, and we'll get you on that as well. I, I'm just keen to raise the tools. It's like, uh, you know, it's great we've got that whole idea of. Talk about mental health. Let's let's raise the staff. It's not stigmatised. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, great. Done that. Let's now get to a point where we actually do something meaningful about this. And yeah. given the tools actually exist and the evidence exists, like why we're not starting to embrace it is beyond me. Yeah, exactly. And just a quick plug too for Precure. So like. Um, I guess everyone has permission in this lockdown world to retrain, and I'm one of those ones who's taken that um, to heart. Um, talk about the health coaching that you've been doing. Uh, oh, yeah, so just sort of, yeah, thanks, Well, I just, we've sort of felt that there's going to be, a, there already is a health care gap, right? We've got a sickness system. Uh, even if our general practice and nurse workforce wasn't mostly retiring and was going to go down by a third in the next 10 years, okay. uh, we still would have a problem. And so the question is, can we, can you more quickly learn how to be able to help yourself and help other people? And the answer is yes. So we've got the whole sort of profession of health coaching going, which has been a great experience of sort of those well-known techniques of meeting people where they're at, uh, asking them questions, staying on their agenda Holding, helping people be accountable to themselves, but doing it in a context of those sort of lifestyle medicine tools of diet, breath, exercise, sleep, uh, hot, cold, all those sorts of things has been mm. really great. So we've had quite a few cohorts come through now, now and people becoming health coaches in their own practice or joining in a doctor's practice and that sort of stuff. Uh, and then we're just launching this whole second profession of a mental health coach that will sort of take those coaching skills and then apply them in a more advanced way, especially around. Um, learning acceptance commitment therapy. So uh, if you're in Australia, New Zealand, then, then precure.com is we're really launching into that at the moment. So yeah, come, come and give us a bit. And, and even if you don't want to do that, you know, come and do one of our 21-day programs. So some of those are free, some of those are paid. Uh, or just join our community, which is all free, and just be part of a that sort of like-minded stuff. I sort of feel desperately at the moment that it's great having an academic career, but one that doesn't translate into practice and then leave something when I've done that's made the world a slightly better place. I feel gutted about that. And, you know, frankly, under my shift over the last 20 years in academia, we've got less active, fatter, sicker, <laughs> uh, ate worse, slept worse. So, you know, I was really desperate now in the second half of my career to do something more constructive about actually changing that. I love that. I love that. The pressure's on as it should be. Yeah. And yeah. and I guess that's the true measurement, right? Is that when it's all said and done, did it work or not? And you know, that's the that's the human story. Um, Grant, until yeah. next time. Thank you, mate. Appreciate it. Holding my head again, making my way through crowded thoughts. Sometimes it's hard to get out of it. 
broke my heart in the dark I was just trying to feel something Falling asleep to the sound of it Always used to let you clean up the messes Down on my knees, thought I couldn't stand up on my own Turns out sometimes you're stronger alone Bringing out the fight, yeah, bring on all the lightning Cause I'm looking for a hero, look inside the mirror I find one, oh Carry the hurt when it gets too hard Pick it up, dust it off When I fall down 11, I get up 12 Don't need nobody else Yeah, I can save myself Got burned, but I learned Our scars make us who we are Now I'm ten feet tall over my demons Remind me no one's got me like myself Yeah, I love me without any help I'm the best thing to believe in So I'm bringing out the fight, yeah Bring on all the lightning Cause I'm looking for a hero Look inside the mirror I find one, oh Carry the hurt when it gets too hard Pick it up, dust it off When I fall down a As heavy as a season And the sun is always right behind the storm 